listening to a podcast from The National. Everything we were seeing and hearing inside Syria was what the Syrian government wanted us to see and hear. That's Gareth Brown, a foreign correspondent for The National who spent last week in Syria. Um, anytime we were speaking to um, or interviewing uh, Syrians or even government officials, there was always a minder with us from the Mohabarat. Um, and it uh, really gave the impression that the people we were speaking to weren't actually free to speak their mind. And they were telling us what they thought the government um, wanted us to be told. The picture Gareth paints of his trip to Syria is not the picture President Bashar al-Assad wants to show the media. What Gareth reported during a Syrian government-monitored trip was a nation of people confused and ravaged by war, as expected. President Assad and his regime would have the world outside Syria think he has stabilized his country and that the population have bought in to his efforts. This was one of the regime's sponsored stops for the journalists. It's from a social center in Aleppo, run by the Syria Trust, the charity organization sponsored by Esmet Assad, President Bashar's wife. This is the side Assad wanted the journalists to see. It's hopeful and bright, and just going by this, you would think all is well in Syria. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi, and we spoke to Gareth over the phone as part of a series of stories he told about his trip last week to Syria, more of which you can read about on our website. Here, he tells us about what he saw firsthand as Assad's propaganda machine. It was very interesting visiting the Syrian, the Syrian parliament just a few days after the, the US-led uh, airstrikes because there was near unanimity in, in, in the account of what had happened. Um, and usually that's very rare to get from, from a group of politicians. If you have 20 politicians in a room, you normally have 20 or 25 different opinions. But here there was absolutely no dissent. So we were very aware that on this trip we were, you know, kind of directly experiencing first-hand efforts to, to kind of manufacture and disseminate propaganda. Um, and that came in many forms, you know, it came from these government officials. We saw it in the media, in the Syrian media. We saw it in, in, in talks with religious officials. But we also saw it in the eyes of, of people who are, who, who were on the streets, you know, just chatting to people in shops and in restaurants. I think in, in the last few years in regime held Syria, this tendency to, to kind of propagandize has become almost instinctive in that People, people almost know what the government line is going to be before an event has even happened. Um, so once something does happen, you know, they, they know exactly where to, to pick up. Your trip in Syria overlapped with that of uh, famed journalist Robert Fisk. Regarding Duma, Fisk led his story with a doctor who tells, who tells him that the victims uh, were, quote, were overcome not by gas, but by oxygen starvation, the rubbish-filled tunnels and basement in which they lived on a night of wind and heavy shoveling that stirred up a dust storm, end quote. I mean, do you think that Fisk bought into the propaganda? Do you think that he believed uh, what he was being told on this trip? Yeah, I mean, we, I, I read that Fisk article, you know, whilst we were actually there, and it's noticeable he didn't actually speak to any kind of witnesses, and even the doctor he spoke to, to wasn't there. Um, and it's also interesting that Fisk was let in to, to Duma, where this, this chemical attack took place, even before the UN... OPCW, what chemical weapons inspectors were allowed in. Um, 
you know, Fisk is able to, to basically come in, come and go in Damascus as he pleases. Um, for myself, you know, I've, I've tried to get a visa many times. This is the first time I've, I've ever got a visa, and that's the same for the overwhelming majority of, of journalists. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of state of affairs in Damascus as a journalist um, should, I think, lead us to be very sceptical when, when a journalist is able to operate kind of relatively openly, like, you know, go into regime-held Syria and come and go as they please, there's a reason for that. And it's because they're trusted. They're trusted by the regime. Um, they can be trusted that they're not going to kind of conflict the, um, the, the government account. Um, and, you know, whilst, whilst Robert Fisk's kind of um, uh, article has, has got a lot of coverage, he's not the only journalist that, that um, visited the site. Um, on the same day that he went, some journalists from AP visited Duma, and they did find evidence. Um, well, they spoke to, to to witnesses who said, you know, yeah, there was this this chemical attack, and it wasn't as Fisk had described it. Um, so, I mean, already there are there are kind of accounts that um, undermine um, Robert Fisk's narrative of of, of that of that attack. Um, you know, beyond that, it's um, I, I I think it's it's interesting that um, you know Fisk was was Fisk Fisk's account of this story was just based almost wholly on one person who wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know this this kind of person could have been any any random guy, but because because um, Robert Fisk has this reputation, he has a very wide readership. Him merely mentioning this person in his piece gives this guy's narrative um, an awful lot of credibility. Um, but I haven't seen any other kind of independent um, sources or any other journalistic accounts corroborating what 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 Fisk's account of the Duma attack um, says. So I think there's a lot more work to be done there, certainly. With uh, censorship being the way that it is in Syria and with the public not getting a clear or definitive picture of what's happening on the ground, how does it affect the broader conflict throughout Syria? I think Syria has become notorious for misinformation. Um, in fact, you have some policy being driven by, by, by misinformation. And, and, you know, that misinformation essentially stems from having a lack of reliable journalists on the ground. Or when you do have journalists on the ground, they're, they're kind of slurred or they're not listened to. You know, I think a great example of this is, is the White Helmets. And they're a, a group of first responders who operate in, in rebel-held territory. And essentially they, you know, when, when airstrikes happen, uh, Syrian regime or Russian airstrikes happen, they rush into the buildings and they attempt to save as many lives as they can. Um, because they're operating in rebel-held uh, territory, they're, they're tainted by these accusations that they're in cahoots with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, um, despite there being kind of minimal evidence that that is the case. And they're also, uh, you know, they have accusations leveled at them that they actually stage footage um, to kind of make it look like the the, the regime or the Russian Air Force are committing, uh, you know, pretty serious war crimes that, that aren't actually going on. Um, and a lot of that, I think, does come from this kind of misinformation kind of issue that's happening in Syria. Um, and, and, you know, the White Helmets have, um, they've been funded by the UK government. So quickly, uh, a kind of story of misinformation of the White Helmets being terrorists, or, 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 or however it is put, uh, that, that develops into, well, actually, you know, the UK government who is helping fund this group are funding terrorists. And then that 
becomes a lot more than just a, a news problem or a misinformation problem. That, that you know that creates serious kind of policy dilemmas, um, and it can change the whole um, you know kind of regional and, and local dimensions of, of various international actors like and their, and their actions within Syria. So you know misinformation is not it's not a sideshow. It's not a it's not a side issue. Actually, it's 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 central to a lot of the the kind of challenges that Syria is facing, um, both in the last few years, but, but still um, to this day. Moving on to Aleppo, uh, can you give us your picture of the city? You wrote that while it's no longer a war zone, it is isolated and a far cry from the important trading route that it used to be. Yeah, I mean, Aleppo was often um, regarded before the war as the economic powerhouse of Syria. Um, and, you know, that's due to its geographical location. It has a strong history of kind of trade and markets. A lot of people would pass through um, pass through on Aleppo on, on their way to wherever else they were going. Now it, it's stuck in a very weird situation because it's been reclaimed by the government or by the regime. Um, it's 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 nigh on impossible for kind of international funding to 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 get into that city. Um, and you know, uh, whole neighbourhoods of, of Aleppo were destroyed in the fighting, which culminated in December 2016. You know, there is still a population there who are who are kind of struggling. Whatever they believe, whether they're pro-government, anti-government, whether they have ever sided with the rebels, uh, now there's there's definitely a kind of semblance of people accepting the situation how it is and trying to get on with their lives. That is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to rebuild without the kind of international support that you might see elsewhere. For example, in somewhere like Mosul, you know, recaptured by the Iraqi government um, from ISIS. In a place like Mosul, you have you know the United Nations pouring money in. You have organizations like the UNDP uh, building wells, building pipes, building sewage plants. None of that can happen. None of that um, can happen in, in Aleppo because, because the government is under very, very serious sanction regime. So, you know, the little help that does come in, it comes from the Syrian government, rich Syrian investors, um, potentially some, some Russian or Iranian investors who are kind of allied to the regime too, but it's nowhere near what the uh, what the city needs and you know that's not going to change anytime soon there's not going to be a lifting of sanctions against Assad it's just not on the table in in Washington in London mm-hmm. anywhere it's it's um, you know it's not palatable in in so many circles so I mean it raises a, an interesting I guess conundrum Re- Aleppo is firmly back in back in the hands of the government but um, there's, there's no kind of idea of how that reconstruction is going to happen you mentioned how one problem to rebuilding Aleppo is the mass exodus of the city's young and educated. Where are they going and who will replace them in the workforce? Yeah, this is a problem not just facing Aleppo, but it's facing the whole of Syria. Um, largely speaking, the people that have fled are the ones that could afford to. So they were the educated middle classes. Um, you know, there are great numbers of these, these people kind of languishing in refugee camps in Turkey uh, in Lebanon, in in Jordan, there's, there's millions in those in those three countries alone, and more and more are reaching places like Europe, Germany in particular, Canada, the United States to a lesser extent, the U.S. Uh, and they're you know they they they're largely speaking starting new lives for themselves. They've they've got the qualifications. These are the doctors and the lawyers who can actually fit relatively seamlessly into into 
kind of other country societies with minimal adjustments because uh, they've got the qualifications to pick up work and things like that. And there's absolutely no sign, there's no sign that these people are going to go back anytime soon. You know, I think for a lot of them, the refugees I speak to in Europe, the underlying reason why they left is the Assad government, the Assad regime. Um, it's, you know, it's far, there's a far greater proportion of people who fled the regime and fled ISIS or groups like Jabhat al-Nusra. And that regime is going nowhere, you know, it's firmly in place. So, um, at least in the short to midterm, there's, there's kind of no sign these people are going to, um, return and who as you said you know who's going to replace them there's there's not an obvious answer for that the article i wrote for for the national i mentioned uh recent statistics women outnumber men in the workplace in syria now by by four to one so only 20 percent of the work of this, this is excluding the the army but 20 percent of the kind of regular workforce is men so there's a massive a massive gulf in, in the availability of manpower and and the requirements of, of cities to rebuild Thanks to Gareth Brown. I'd also like to thank Lisa Ayash for her help translating and Kevin Jeffers for producing. Follow Beyond the Headlines on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcasting app and at our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Nasal Wesmi. Thanks for listening and goodbye.